Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. You have these voices in your head saying, well, this won't sell five million. And of course, nothing I ever write yeah. will. And that's fine. That kind of thing should only happen to you once. But yes, you're, you become self-conscious and you, you start to preempt the critics mm. and you start to preempt the readers mm. and you start to worry about, you know, if a book is an international success, mm. will this make sense in, in China? And of course, mm. it's ridiculous mm. to think like that. When I wrote one day, part of the reason why it was a pleasure to write was because I wasn't thinking of any of yeah. that. You know, I was just writing the thing I wanted to write. So that's what you have to hold on to, I think. Not preempt critics or readers mm. and write what you feel passionate mm. about and hope that it makes sense. But that's the only difficult repercussion of one day taking off in that way. It was a, a kind of voice, a sort of um, voice whispering in my ear, uh, you know, this isn't good enough. What is the challenge of following up a runaway bestseller? And can success paralyse the creative juices of a writer? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. Well, on this evening's show, we're going to take a bit of a literary road trip to beautiful Bantry in West Cork to meet with some of the writers, storytellers and teachers who took part in the 2015 West Cork Literary Festival. And what a terrific breeze it was that swept through the town of Bantry last week. There was S.J. Watson, Tessa Hadley, John Boyne, Dervla Murphy, Michael Faber, Kevin Barry, Neil Mukherjee, Nick Davis, Carlo Gebler and the great Graeme Norton. Yep, all very lively and creative indeed. Now I have to say, some of the standout events for me were Mary Coslow's cosy coffee and chat event in gorgeous Bantry House, Noel Williams' thoughtful reading from his Booker-nominated novel History of the Rain, and Michael Smith's awe-inspiring talk on the legendary Ernest Shackleton, one event where there was absolute silence in the room. Well, let's get straight into the festival and meet with the softly-spoken David Nichols. David Nichols is an award-winning English novelist and screenwriter. In 2009, David achieved phenomenal success when his third novel, One Day, sold over 5 million copies. Later, this bittersweet love story was made into a movie starring Anne Hathaway and Jim Sturgis. Now, David's creative talents are not just limited to writing popular fiction. His screenwriting credits include Cold Feet, the adaption of Blake Morrison's When Did You Last See Your Father, Thomas Hardy's Tess of Doverville and Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. Well, in 2014, David's latest book, Us, won the Specsaver Author of the Year Award at the UK's National Book Awards. Us tells the story of Douglas, an emotionally cold, fuddy-duddy biochemist whose very ordinary marriage of 21 years is on the rocks. Doug's solution, a micromanaged grand tour of Europe with his wife, Connie, and his teenage son. Yes, all very exciting. Well, that's the plan. David begins his novel with an intriguing quote from American short story writer Laurie Moore from Agnes of Iowa, where she writes, The sweet habit of each other had begun to put lines around her mouth, lines that looked like quotation marks, as if everything she had said had been said before. Well, I grabbed David just after his reading and asked him, is it possible to start over at 50? Well, I'm uh, I'm 48, <laughs> so and, and I'm I, 41. <laughs> well, I, and I I have no inclination to start over. I'm very content. I do think that 50 means something different 
now to what it meant perhaps when I was a kid and I used to look up at 50-year-olds and think, well, they're nearly retired, you know, everything is settled, everything is fixed. I think now, you know, there's another 40 or 50 years to go and uh, in the case of the novel, Connie, the character, looks at those 40 years and decides that she wants to change, that she doesn't want the next 40 years of her life to be a, a decline and I suspect a lot of people feel that in their 50s. They don't feel as old as perhaps they thought they would and the possibility of change, the possibility of a new career, a new life, a new relationship is appealing. So yes, I think that is something that's perhaps open to this generation in a way that it wasn't to previous generations. But you think as we go through middle age that we somehow reevaluate what we're looking for in relationships or reevaluate our commitments to our family or what we want to bring? You know, I'm probably more traditional about that than the novel suggests. Mm. Uh, you know, I think family, marriage, all of those institutions, to me, they're not traps they're not the sort of prisons they're not uh, they're not they don't necessarily uh, imply a kind of dullness and conformity and convention and familiarity I think it to me the whole business of starting a family and being in a long-term relationship is an adventure I don't mean to be Pollyanna-ish about it but it's it's demanding but exciting too mm-hmm. but when you're writing a novel you have to kind of spice things up and you have to blow things apart. Mm. And so probably the novel paints a sort of a slightly darker uh, uh, version of of perhaps family and long-term relationships than I I feel in real life. I mean, one of the interesting things since writing the novel is so many people have come up to me and said, that happened to a friend of mine, or, Mm. you know, that's exactly what my husband Mm. did, or that's exactly what my wife did. And, And so I'm pleased that it's reflecting that Mm. but at the same time it's not a um, manifesto Mm. Um, I think what is true in the the novel is that uh, a great deal of family life revolves around you know the idea of raising a child creating an adult and when that adult leaves the house it can be quite a Mm. shock the person who you are left alone in the house with isn't necessarily the person you fell in love with and that's the dilemma in the novel Um, what how does uh, having children change a romantic mm. relationship and how can you rediscover all the things that that attracted you to each other in the first mm. place that caused you to create a family in the first mm. place and I think that is quite a common experience the whole empty nest syndrome the the empty bedrooms and the sudden silence when the kids leave home I have very small kids so I, I'm not too worried about that just yet but I'm sure I will be one day. But within all the domestication, it's sometimes very hard to bring that spark into relationships because the daily grind, Mm. the daily routines, of course they lack spontaneity. So it's very hard to create all that vibrancy and energy in a relationship. Do you think it's inevitable that in some way relationships run their course? Um, No, not at all. I I, I mean, I've been Mm. with my partner for, what, 18 years now, and she's heard all the jokes and and all the stories. And, you know, there is a a, a loss of curiosity, Mm. I suppose. You you, you feel as if all all your memories involve the other Mm. person. And uh, it's very hard to keep things fresh. Absolutely, Mm. it's difficult. But I think also there's a kind of uh, pleasure in familiarity mm. and in security and in constancy and yes things things can be difficult and there's a there's a there's the, the, the potential for for boredom and frustration is immense but i i think there's something 
wonderful about long-term relationships. I think it's not a it's not a flat plane. You know, there are ups and downs as in any relationship. And I'm actually rather sentimental about it. I think it's just again, you know, when you're trying to write a an entertaining novel. I mean, I'm sure there's a wonderful novel to be written about a very very happy marriage. In fact, it's quite an interesting challenge to write a, to write about something that's constant and good and reciprocate. Yeah. And possibly for some readers, we find that all a bit boring. Well, exactly. I, I think you have a you know you have a, a an obligation as a writer to, to blow things out. And in us, in, in, in that case, you have two opposites. One, yeah. a very spontaneous, artistic, adventurous, risky soul, and the other, a very formulaic, organised, mm. almost repressed sort yes. of a man. Yes. And of course, those are the qualities that attract them mm. to each other in the first place. Uh, Connie, the, 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 the artist, the wife, loves the fact that Douglas is, is solid and will look after her and has his passions, mm. but his passions are in a completely different field, in the field of science. And, uh, you know, this is someone who clearly cares for her and is a great contrast to all these terrible men she's been out with before. And for Douglas, who's leading a rather sedate, mm. dull life, Connie is this wonderful spark and this sudden influx of energy into his life. And she provides him with a kind of a cultural education and opens his eyes and challenges him. But of course, 20 years later, all of those things that once seemed so wonderful now start to grate a little. The, the, the qualities that first brought them together now are pushing them apart. It's a, it's a, it's a recurring theme, I think, mm. in, especially in love stories, this mm. idea of opposites who, who both attract and repel. Mm. And love stories don't necessarily have to be easy. Sure they don't. No, no. I, I, I think, you know, often when we look back on our lives, the, both the, the highs and the lows of our lives revolve around love you know it's often the biggest thing that happens to us the, the most wonderful and also the most traumatic thing yeah no I, I I'm I'm always confused I mean I think Romeo and Juliet is a fine play but I, I don't really believe it I don't know why they should feel that way about each other before they exchange a word mm. I think the really interesting stuff in love stories comes from the cut and thrust and the friction and the conflict and the arguments as much as the uh the romance and and, and so I have no hesitation in calling us a love story but it's a you know it's a, a really love story and a difficult love story and a kind of gritty love story. It's also a love story about misunderstandings because Doug and Connie don't really communicate. Sure, they don't. And they don't communicate for very real reasons. But somehow... It struck me they missed their opportunity. The novel exists in two time frames, the mm. present, where on mm. this what may well be their final holiday together as a family, and the past, where, where Douglas is kind of forensically dismantling the relationship and looking back mm. and thinking about the things he might have said, might have done, that might have changed the way things worked out. That's why the, it seemed to me important that the novel was written in the first person, mm. because Douglas isn't someone who expresses himself particularly well. And uh, he often, the love and care that he does feel for his wife and his son, he expresses through control and, and through very conventional ideas and through a kind of rigid desire to, to mould his son and, and have everything the way he wants it. Mm. So there is love there, mm. but it's, it's expressed in the worst possible way. So I, that's really what I wanted to write. I wanted to write about a man who was full of passion, full of love, full of care, full of a, a sincere love for his wife, but who can't say it out loud and who, in often his, who, whose attempts to express it are often misguided and wrong-headed. And, of course, there's a kind of pain in that, but there's also a comedy in that, mm. I think. You know, someone who, who constantly, constantly does the right thing. 
I mean, he changes over the mm. course of the novel. He becomes a more sincere, yeah. more uh, open person. And a more redeeming character. Yes, I think so. I think that it was important that it, with the book was both a literal journey across mm. Europe and a kind of a journey for Douglas's personality. Yes, mm. I think he would have been, if he'd, if he'd arrived in Barcelona at the end of the book, the same man, the one who arrived in Paris, it would be a rather sad book. But I, I think there's hopefully change mm. and opportunity there. Do you think it is possible to wake up in bed with someone? After five years, five months or five days and realise you don't know them. Uh, I think that can be the case if if you're not frank with each other. Mm. Yeah, I, mm. I, I think, and certainly that's the case in lots of marriages, it becomes harder and harder to have those very sincere and heartfelt conversations you had when you first met. There's a, mm. kind, a kind of self-consciousness mm. creeps in and, and the, the affection you feel is expressed in very mundane ways, you know, the, 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 the bunch of flowers on Valentine's mm. Day and the, the kind of hug last thing at night rather than the kind of thrill and um, passion of that mm. initial encounter. So yes, I think it is... It is possible to lose track mm. of each other, to not know what's going on, especially when children become involved, mm. because that requires so much energy and commitment mm. and, and takes up so much time. That's, again, what's happened in the, what has happened to Douglas and mm. Connie in this book. They've lost sight of each other. The book is Douglas's attempt to, to become the husband he wants to be. Mm. He should have been all along. Can I ask you about rejection? Father-son's relationships are not often smooth like mother-daughter relationships. And sometimes a daughter can reject her mother. How important was it for you to bring that into the whole context of this family's life? Well, I'd never really written about parents and children in in my other books. There's a little bit of it in one day, Mm. but it was never the the central theme. And in this book, I thought, well, you know, I'm a father myself. Mm. I should probably grapple with Mm. this subject. And uh, it's not autobiographical, but it's certainly true that my father and I didn't always have a particularly harmonious relationship we weren't very we, 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 were, we weren't very frank with each other you know we didn't have honest heart-to-heart conversations I think the idea of that would have been very awkward to both of us but um, I, I think there's something particularly complex in, and difficult in, in father-son relationships in that fathers often want to look at their son and see themselves mm. often in quite a direct way you know you want to feel your influence you want to feel that you've you've played a role in creating this person mm. and of course when you're a teenager, that's not what you want at all. You want mm. to push away. You want to show uh, that you're separate mm. and independent and original and different from your parents, and particularly from your father. And um, that's, I think, often a very difficult time in father-son mm. relationships. The father's desire to see a younger version of themselves and the son's desire to become someone mm. completely different. And that's what's at the heart, I think, of the pain in this this Mm. novel. Douglas, when he looks at Albie, can't Mm. see himself. He Mm. can't see anything of himself. He can't Mm. see his influence. And Albie is, in a very um, extravagant, demonstrative way, showing his rejection of his father. Mm. And those, I think, are the most painful passages in the book. Um, uh, It's a a bad relationship, Mm. at least at the beginning of the book. And you were writing the book as your father got progressively very unwell. Was that very difficult, writing about these type of themes and also experiencing the death of your father? Well, it's certainly... um, uh, There's nothing of my father in the book. Mm. I mean, I deliberately Mm. wrote a character Mm. who was almost the opposite Mm. of my father. My father wasn't the scientist. He wasn't the kind of nervous, angsty man that Mm. Douglas is. I mean, Douglas is rather a gentle character, and my Mm. father certainly wasn't that. So I I was sort of writing against... 
our situation, mm. writing the opposite of our situation. But certainly, you know, when I was sixteen or seventeen, and I and I became, I suppose, for want of a better word, arty, mm. you know, <laughs> and I kind of waved it in his face. My father was a very practical man. He was a mechanic. He was a mechanical engineer. He worked in a, a factory, and he's very pragmatic and worked very hard and was very physical and kind of um, a, a sort of a man's man. And when I was sixteen or seventeen, I was the opposite again, in a very demonstrative way. Uh, and that was a, a difficult time. And I, we never really got over that. I think a lot of it was to do with kind of class and aspiration and culture. And, you know, the books that I loved became a kind of weapon in a, in a war, really. You know, the, 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 sitting there reading T.S. Eliot on the sofa while your father watches Benny Hill. You know, you're making mm. a statement. Mm. And, yeah, I, and I, you know, I was very, very bookish and very arty and, and, and kind of very... Um, vocally left wing and my father was none of those things and and I was very um obnoxious I think <laughs> yeah. yeah so I think I kind of um the book isn't an apology for that because you know that's a natural stage for adolescents go through but it was a kind of um attempt to explore it I think and uh, I think also you know I I, would, I didn't put anything in that I wouldn't have been happy for my father to read but I I at the same time I knew that he probably wouldn't he was too ill to read mm. the book. So I suppose there was a certain um, frankness mm -hmm. in that, the treatment of that subject matter. Mm. Writing it after he died, I mean, it still had to be a comedy. Mm. You know, I, I still wanted it to be, um, you know, not, not too doomy in mm. uh, a, a book. But, but definitely that experience found its way onto mm. the page in indirect ways. Mm. I mean, there isn't a single line in the book that my father would have said or that I would have said. But that experience did find its way onto the page. One thing I'm curious to know is that you write in a variety of different locations. You don't just sit and hammer away at your keyboard in the family home. Mm. You go to libraries, yeah. you go to coffee shops. Why is that? For a long time, I think, I, 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 with this book, I, mm. I think it was just because I had nothing to write about. And I, I oh. started to blame, you know, the software and mm. the coffee and the view from the window. <laughs> you know, when, you're, when yeah. you're a bit stuck, you start to think, well, it's not me, it's the circumstances. And so it's, it's true that I, you know, so I tried writing at night and I tried writing in pubs and in early in the morning and in, in, uh, in offices mm. and libraries and all over the place. And actually, it was just that I had nothing to say. And mm. actually, well, this book really took off once I, I finally kind of settled in an office, mm. which I went to nine to five and wrote in a very regimented uh, way mm. and a very very I really stuck to my timetable and forced myself to sit in one place and look at the wall mm. and write it but I think uh, all writers have mm. those anxieties about you know do I use a fountain pen mm. or maybe if I buy a new notebook or, or maybe if I get up a little earlier mm. in the morning it'll come so I think it's that it's trying to find a a method to something which is is really impossible to mm. pin down there is no technique mm. It's constantly changing. It's intangible. You can't write if you've got nothing to say. Uh, and the circumstances shouldn't really matter. Mm. So I think it was a symptom of my own... You wanted to use the word stuckness. <laughs> my, my, my own lack of inspiration. And what about the anxieties within success? Because... One of your books sold five million copies, was made into a film. Mm. So was there an element of the pressure you were putting on yourself, maybe? Yes, I think, mm. you know, the, you have these voices in your head saying, well, this won't sell five mm. million. And of course, nothing I ever write yeah. will, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing should only happen to you once, really. Yeah. 
But yes, you you become self-conscious and you 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 start to preempt the critics mm. and you start to preempt the readers mm. and you start to worry about you know if a book is an international success, mm. will this make sense mm. in in China? And of course, mm. it's ridiculous mm. to think like mm. that. When I wrote one day, part of the reason why it was a pleasure to write was because I wasn't thinking of any of yeah. that. You know, I was just writing the thing I wanted to write. So that's what you have to hold on mm. to, I think, not preempt critics or readers mm. and write what you feel passionate mm. about and hope. That it makes sense, but that's the only difficult repercussion of of one day taking off in that way was a kind of a kind of voice, a sort of、um, voice whispering in my ear,、uh, you know, this isn't good enough.、Uh, having said that, you know, I, in a way, I was grateful for that. I didn't want to write something that was going to be a disappointment or something that felt dashed off to cash in on the success of one day. I mean, my publishers would have loved to have published another book two years after one day rather than five years. But I had nothing to say two years after, and and so it was important to sit it out and wait until there was something that I felt equally passionate about, or, or more passionate about. In fact, I hope this is a better book because you always want to improve as a writer. That was British novelist David Nichols, who I have to say charmed and delighted audiences at the West Cork Literary Festival. Us is published by Hodder and Stoughton and retails at about twelve euros in paperback. It's a lovely read, brilliantly structured, and incredibly funny and provocative in parts. Coming up next, can a book capture the essence of a place or a people? But first, let's kick back with the hugely haunting Italian composer Fabrizio Patrulini. Talking books on News Talk 106 to 108. 
And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. Well, it was all go in Bantry this week at the West Cork Literary Festival. And tonight on Talking Books, we're meeting with some of the writing talent that took part. Now, one of the more interesting aspects of this year's festival was its three and five day writer workshops. There was Writing for Children and Teenagers with Sarah Webb, Memoir with Carlo Gebler, Investigative Reporting with Nick Davis and The Short Story with Tessa Hadley. Now, one of the workshops that particularly appealed to me was travel writing with Anthony Satin. Anthony's travel writing credits include Lonely Planet, Egypt, Morocco and Algeria, The Essential Istanbul, City Pack, Brussels, Bruges and Bangkok. And if that wasn't enough, he's also written a range of historical travel logs, including Gates of Africa, Shooting the Breeze and Lifting the Veil. Two centuries of travellers, traders and tourists in Egypt. Anthony is ranked as one of the ten key influences on contemporary travel writing. I have to say, this man is a walking, talking encyclopaedia on all things the Middle East and North Africa. Hello, my name is Anthony Satin and I'm a writer. I'm a writer of history and travel. I am sometimes called a travel writer, but I like to call myself a storyteller because everything I've written has stories in it. Um, I started out writing fiction, then I went into a bit of history, and then I wrote a travel book, and sometimes I write travel guides. Many, many years I've been a long-time contributor to the Sunday Times and Condé Nast Traveller, so I travel around the world for them, writing stories about travel. Anthony, do you think we can actually discover a country through a travel log? Do you think we can come to grips with a country, authentically feel, smell and dream a country through a book. I hope we can. That's exactly what travel writing is about. I'm here uh, teaching some people this week, and the first thing I made them do was go and make notes. And what people do is they tend to write down what they see. And so I made them stand there with their eyes shut and listen and smell. And that's what the best travel writing does. It can bring you to a place and bring that place alive. But um, these days... We live in the age of the internet, of, of television, of, of Google. You can find out a lot of things about a place without actually going there. And the joy of travel writing is it can bring you to a place in a way that you didn't expect. Do you think, though, the art of travel writing, if you look back to the likes of Graham Greene or George Orwell, and then look at contemporary books that are written about countries, do you think the craft has been lost in some way? Oh, not at all. I think we're going through a very good phase at the moment. And it goes in, it goes in cycles. Um, and mostly sort of the fault of publishers, I think. Uh, every now and again, a travel book will do very well, will sell very well, and therefore lots of publishers will pile in and say, they'll all say, we want travel books, and they'll publish all sorts of things, many many books that shouldn't appear, and then then it's perceived that the travel book is finished and sales drop and whatever. But at the moment, there's some really, really good travel writers producing some excellent work. I mean, there's nature writing at the moment is the big, you know, the big, the big uh, thing at the moment. People like Robert McFarlane, for instance, who's you know, ri- written a couple of excellent books, really, really good. And there's a whole group of people alongside him, Hugh Thompson, for instance, um, writing about walking, about being out in, in, in the world. And, you know, that's something that you, you can't get from, from the internet, that sense of being out in nature and, and engaging with not just the natural world, but also with history, with local history. Now, one person I think of has done it pretty well is Tim Butcher, linking history to travelogues. Do you think that you can actually travel to a country with a book and read through that book 
and understand it more while you're in situ. Oh, I think that's certainly, that's certainly the case. Mm. Tim Butcher's a good mm. example. Mm. Although, I mean, I think most people are not going to go to the sort of places that Tim Butcher's writing about. He's well, Liberia about. and Congo, Congo wouldn't exactly, be. Exactly, yeah. yes. And the whole point of, of mm. his Congo book was, I think, his mother travelled there on her own as a teenager, you know, without any problem. And he now is, you know, is risking his life mm. to go places. Do you think there's an, a lot of ad-libbing, though, in it? Because I would read a lot of travelogues or books that are adventure meets history. And in some way, I think they're hamming it up a bit. I think they are. But all of the best storytelling is hamming up, isn't it? And it is, after all, storytelling. Uh, William Dalrymple made that point very early on in his, his writing career, that you know, there, there, there is the journey that he makes, there is the, there's the, all the, the facts he gathers, but in the end what he's doing is trying to tell a story as excitingly as mm. possible. So that's, you know, that, that's what you want to read. So you've written Lonely Planets, Lonely Planet Algeria, you've written The Lonely Planet, um, I think, Egypt and also Morocco. So where does fact meet fiction and where does truth meet what's actually happening to you on your little trip? Oh, well, well Lonely Planet is, is all fact, obviously. Yeah. But you can describe a bar that's wonderfully atmospheric and great food, but you actually may not have eaten it. Ah, well, that's, that's often the case with Lonely Planet and, and with all guidebooks. They don't pay enough to, uh, to their writers mm-hmm. for them to go and experience everything they need to write about. Mm-hmm. But the reason why those are the only three books I've, I've written is that those are countries I know very well. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the fee that I was paid to do it I wasn't spending on restaurants. I knew those restaurants already. What is it about North Africa and parts of the Middle East that seems to obsess travel writers? Well, speaking for myself, having spent <laughs> most of my life, my adult life, travelling in, in the Middle East, is where I went after school, and I've been returning there ever since. Um, it's firstly, it's the, the first step outside Europe, and it's so different from from real. It's such a different culture, but also that interface of a different culture and history, and the history is you know, looms so large, particularly in Egypt, which, where I've keep on going back to all the time. I've written a lot about Or if you look at Turkey or Syria or other countries, that there are living monuments to history still there, aren't there? Oh, and there's endless surprises as well. I mean, in Turkey, for instance, when I was researching my latest book, uh, Young Lawrence, about... Lawrence of Arabia. There's, there was a place that someone recommended I went to called Gobekli Tepe, which is near the mm-hmm. Syrian border, which is quite close to where Lawrence was working as an archaeologist. It's a series of, of um, standing stones, like sort of small Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Stonehenge is dated to 2500 BC or thereabout. And Gobekli Tepe goes back to 9500 BC. That's 11,500 years ago. And they're, stand, they're still they're immaculate stones mm-hmm. with carvings of humans and animals. And they turn history upside down. Yeah. Nobody knows, uh, quite understands... What, how this happened so early on. What happened between then and 2,500 BC when there are the pyramids and Stonehenge and things like that? There's a big blank in history. So you're yeah. constantly stumbling upon things that are extraordinary in that part of the world. So do you think then that there are undiscovered parts of our world, whether it's in Africa or in the Middle East, that no travel writer, no geographer, no explorer has actually found? Oh, definitely. Wow. Definitely, no, all over the place, and, and particularly in that part of the world. I mean, I think in Egypt, for instance, they reckon they still have about at least half of the antiquities mm-hmm. are still buried in Egypt. Can you tell me about lifting the veil? It's been a huge success for you, and I know that it is being made into a movie, is it, or a TV series? It's a t- yes, into a TV miniseries. Well, they're t- taking stories out of it and turning it into a drama. When I first went to Egypt... Um, 
long time ago. The book was published in 1988, originally, <laughs> the first edition. It's been in print um, ever since. And I, I was just struck by the range of experience of travellers in, in that one country. I thought it was extraordinary. So I started telling stories from 1760s mm-hmm. when um, Scott, called James mm-hmm. Bruce, went off looking for the source of the Nile, right up to, well, up, up to our age, up to the Suez Crisis. And, you know, the, the, there's, a constant, there's a constant sort of amazement um, by Europeans arriving in a country like mm. Egypt, but the interface of of a, a fallen culture mm. and an immense mm. beauty of the landscape. And it's funny when you say fallen culture there, because you were in Tahrir Square the night of the uprising, weren't you? Yes, I was in Tahrir. Well, I, when I was um, researching this uh, latest book, mm. Young Lawrence, um, I was in Tahrir Square the day that uh, President Morsi mm. was ousted um, in what's not being called a coup. But isn't extraordinary that how history can be made alive as we're travelling through a country? Yes. Well. On that trip, on that, you know, I was away for six weeks. Um, I was in Istanbul just after the Gezi Park riots. Um, I was in uh, Beirut just after the, uh, the rock- Hezbollah fired rockets into the city, and the place was in lockdown. It, every, everywhere I went, there were people pointing guns and being being anxious about things. And the thing about the Middle East, when I first went, everyone it was considered to be a very sleepy place. Mm-hmm. And I, I had journalist friends who complained that nothing nothing ever happened, you know. And now, of course, they are all complaining that they're working too hard. Tell me, young Lawrence. Why did you decide or why did you think that you had something more to offer on Lawrence of Arabia? If you look at the icons of British history, Churchill and Lawrence seem to be the most written about. So how difficult was it for you to establish something new? I think there was um, there was space. No, nobody had just, just looked mm. at the early life. Um, nobody had put him in the context of the time. Mm. So, for instance, I look at the, the coming of the First World War, mm. the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Mm. He, he lived on literally on the border between Syria and Turkey, which was all the Ottoman Empire, from 1910 to 1914. Um, so he witnesses the, the you know, things falling apart. Mm. And nobody had put his story against against that background. But also, it, um, there's a, the last page of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is mm-hmm. his account of what he did during the war, uh, which wasn't to be published during his lifetime, mm-hmm. says, my greatest motive for everything I did was personal. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's, that's really intriguing. What was that personal motive? And then there was the really compelling fact that um, in August 1914, just before he went off to war, he burnt a manuscript he'd written, a a book he'd written, of his adventures in the the last four years. And I thought, why why would you burn a book? I mean, he he admitted it had taken him a lot of effort to write it. And he said he burnt it because it was immature. But he didn't burn anything else. And there was lots of other manuscripts. So why, you know, I, I disregarded the immature thing. And I thought there was something he didn't want to survive him in case he didn't come back from war. And it's that story that I wanted to uncover. And he was a very secretive character, a very ambitious character, quite an arrogant character, but also quite an idealist, wasn't he? He was extremely gifted. Mm. Um, he, you know, he got a brilliant first um, in medi- medieval history from Oxford, for instance. Mm. I mean, you know, he, he, he was a clever man, um, but he wasn't a team player. He mm. didn't sit very well in any system. And, um, and also he had real issues with his mother. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of that angst. Mm. Um, he thought uh, correctly, it turned out, that he was illegitimate. And do you think it's fair to say that maybe he was escaping to the Middle East to escape his mother in some way? Oh, absolutely. And, and also to, to escape the stigma. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it maybe doesn't hurt so much these days. But a hundred years ago, the idea of being illegitimate really, really did hurt. And I think that was part of what, what made him go away as well. Now, part of what you've written is suggesting about his great big love affair. Can you talk me through that? Because there's some very contradictory evidence on the fact that whether he was gay or not. 
Um, I think it, quite clearly he was gay, I, but I don't think it's, um, it's a sexual love. I think mm. it's uh, something more idealistic. He met a very young man. He was working as an archaeologist for the British Museum. He was a sort of intern, unpaid mm. to begin with. Um, they had 200 local, um, local workers, and the youngest of those was a donkey boy. He was maybe 14 years old when Lawrence first met him, and Lawrence was uh, 20, 21. But there was something about this donkey boy. He... When asked what he was going to do with the money he was earning, and he was bringing wa- he wasn't digging, he was bringing water w- on his donkey for the diggers to, you know, to, to drink. But Lawrence recognized some talent in him, mm-hmm. some potential. Um, so when he asked this young man called Dahum what he was going to do with the money he was earning on the dig, he said he was going to get himself an education. And he was the only one, apart from the headman in the village, who could read or write any Arabic. He taught himself. Mm-hmm. And so Lawrence said about trying to, trying to give this man a break. He's, you know, he pays to educate him. He educates him himself. And within a couple of years, Dahum is becomes one of the four headmen of the whole, this whole group of 200. So he's, you know, he was 16 or 17 by then. An extraordinary you know, change of fortune for this young man um, who was going to Beirut with him, who was being uh, entertained by the British consul in, in Aleppo, things like, you know, un, undreamt of for a village boy. Um, he's very keen, for instance, that, that he'll be educ- that Dahum should be educated, but not to be converted to Christianity, not to be changed, that he should remain an Arab, that he should only receive Arabic books. And I think what... The, the nature of that of, the, of that there is there is a moment in um, in 1913 in the summer of 1913 Lawrence produced a carving of Dahum naked kneeling and um, there was certainly a scandal about that yeah. in the village because uh, but whether the scandal was um, that Lawrence had produ- produced a, um, an image of a living human being which is forbidden in Islam or whether it was because it was this young man naked it's not clear but um, even the people around the English people around him who thought it was somewhat scandalous still accepted this, this young man I mean and, and insisted that he should travel with them and I think if there really was some sexual nature to that relationship then the other the, the other British people wouldn't have accepted Dahum in that group Do you think though if Dahum had survived World War I that the relationship possibly would have been consummated? No, I think um, E.M. Foster, who, um, who was openly gay um, and who wrote about it, became a, a good friend of Lawrence's after the war and he tried very hard to draw Lawrence on this subject. They talked a lot about it. And in the end, Foster said that Lawrence was sexless. And what Lawrence had told him was that he just couldn't do it. The idea of sex with anybody, any sort of physical... He didn't like people touching. He didn't like shaking hands. And the idea of sex with anybody was just simply abhorrent. But how does that tally with the image that we have of Lawrence as this supercharged, high-adrenaline, risk-taking maverick? How does that... Like, there's this iconic image of him that we all grow up with as this hero. Yet, it doesn't make sense that he died a virgin, which he did. Because you would imagine, given all that curiosity for the world, he would have been curious about his sexuality. You would, but it's important not to confuse Lawrence with Peter O'Toole, who mm. played him so well in the, in the <laughs> film of Lawrence Arabia, and who clearly was a womanizer and mm. and you know and 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 certainly did not die a virgin. Mm. I think. Well, for instance, after the war, um, Scott of the Antarctic, his widow, Lady Kathleen Scott, who, who was a well-known, uh, well, a very feisty woman, but a well-known sculptress, yeah. and she clearly thought that a that Lawrence wasn't was was not mm. gay. Um, B, that she was going to marry him. Mm. Something ha- He told her something, and it's written in her diary, mm-hmm. that he revealed something about himself, and it was, it was all impossible. Now, what was it? We don't know. She didn't say. Was it that he, that he was gay? Perhaps. Was it that he had no, no interest in having sex with a woman? It could yeah. be. Was it that he, um, that he enjoyed flagellation? That said, it's all a bit surprising, though, isn't it? Well, it is to us, but... but 
we live in a very sexualized age, mm. and I, I think it was very, very different 100 years ago. I think the average age for a man to lose his virginity in, in Britain in the, before the First World War was somewhere in the 20s. He was, only, you know, he was a young man. He was 26 when the First World War started. Yeah. Um, so it was not necessarily part of his expectation at that part of his life that he would have, that he would have sexual encounter. And how close was he to Siegfried Sassoon and other, some other of the war poets? Well, after the war, he became very, um, very engaged in the, in the British literary scene. I mean, from Thomas Hardy, who was a very old man at that point, but who he became very, very close to. Um, but, but particularly George Bernard Shaw is his real sort of, um, you know, his sort of father figure in a way. And, and Shaw's wife, Charlotte Shaw, becomes um, Lawrence's real confidant. He tells her more than, I think, than he tells anybody else apart from, well, maybe more than he tells anybody else during his life. They're, they're, there's a very, very tight bond there. And Shaw is the one who encourages George Bernard Shaw, mm. to um, not just to write, but also to leave alone the manuscript of Seven Pillars of Wisdom when it's done and stop playing and stop worrying about it and just publish the damn mm. thing. And is it any good? I've never read it. I think it's one of the great unreads of, of history um, <laughs> because it's, 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 it's sort of consciously difficult. Okay. Um, he was writing in the style of Charles Doughty, um, who was... The, sort of the great expert on, on Arabian travel when, and during Lawrence's time, and who travelled in the 1880s and 90s, and who wrote a book, um, Arabia Deserto, that was you know sort of the the, the you know the, the, the standard work on Arabia, on Arabia at that time. And so Lawrence sets out consciously to copy him, both as a traveller but also as a writer. Now Doughty's style is very very arcane, very old fashioned. It's consciously dense and, and high flown. One of the things I do when I when I give talks is I ask who has a copy, and normally I sort of get maybe in a literary sort of group I might get half a hand showing and then I'll ask who's read it to the end and there'll be two or three people only who've, who've, who've managed to finish it but I, I read it but I, I have to say I enjoyed it more when I listened to it as an audio book because it's very long and I, I listened to it when I was re- doing research and I'd sort of be doing other things when I was moving around sort of going going my way to a library or tra- travelling in the Middle East and then you get you sort of suddenly tune in and there's humour in that yeah. book which doesn't necessarily come out after you've slogged through a hundred pages of den- <laughs> dense description of, of you know how they move the camels from one site to another but then there is humour, there's real life in there mm. there's also something also very shocking at the beginning of, of Seven Pillars of Wisdom, there's a description of how the Arabs um, relieve their sexual tension um, and it's on sort of literally page two or three of the book about, you know, and that the women at the, at the oases that they pass through are so disgusting that, you know that, that no, no self-respecting Arab would, would, would sate his lust on what Lawrence calls that rattled flesh <laughs> and so they go into the dunes and they, and they look after each other, these men. And so they're, they're at the very beginning um, and, and, and in an age where, where, where being gay was completely outlawed. Um, you have a man saying that the, these Arabs are, are having sex with each other. What would you think he would make? What would you think Lawrence of Arabia would make of present-day Syria and what is happening? Oh, he would say, I told you so. Shouldn't have done that. He was very, very against the Sykes-Picot agreement, on, which was the sort of the... the, the, the the power behind the, the post-war settlement, the dividing up of the Middle East. He was absolutely adamant the French should have none of it, and the French had Syria and Lebanon, both of which have been particularly troubled since then. Uh, but he was also against the drawing up of the Iraq line, which is, is now sort of unravelling. His idea, and I, I don't think his idea would have worked either, but his idea was to have a commonwealth of, of nations um, over that whole whole area from the Turkish border down into what's now Saudi Arabia. And the whole lot, would, that's a, that includes what's now Jordan, uh, Iraq, 
Syria and Lebanon would have gone to the Hashemites, the sons of the Sharif of Mecca. And I don't think that would have worked because I don't think that people in Syria would have accepted for very long um, someone who'd come out of, out of the Hejaz, out of Mecca. Because as far as the Syrians who had this extremely sophisticated urban, urban culture that's sort of, you know, the old, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world, were not going to be ruled by a tent dweller who'd just come out of the desert. Last question. You've got five cities and five books, or maybe just five regions and five travelogues. What would they be? And none of your own. (laughs) (laughs) You mean, which books would I recommend? Which books jump out? Who's doing it best? Who's writing it best? Oh, that's really put me on the spot. Um, well, the, I would certainly have to have something from Bruce Chatwin. And, um, and surprisingly, because the first thing that springs to mind is, I think, is Songlines, his Australia book. Okay. But the thing I really like about Songlines is the bit in the middle, which is his notebooks, which, is, um, which was everything he collected over more or less over his life that was really important mm-hmm. to him that he hadn't managed to put into a book because he wrote Songlines when he was dying, sort of very young, in his 40s. But actually, I think Viceroy of Ouida, which is a, a, a historical novel, um, set in West Africa is such a powerful evocation of a place and a time. So that's one. So number two? Nicolas Bouvier. He's a French writer. The, his book is called, in English, uh, The Way of the World. Oh. And he's a young man who sets off with a, with a friend of his to head to, towards, the, towards the east, to Iran, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And it, it captures that sense of just lighting out, just going oh. so brilliantly. Yeah, it's, and it's also very well translated. So it's a, that's a beautiful book. My third, my third book, my third place... Um, of all the Egypt books, and there are many, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and not my own, <laughs> what else would I recommend? Travelling on the Nile. I think the most, I mean, there's, there's, there have been so many, it's brought out really good writing in so many people, but I think the most entertaining and, and extraordinary is probably Amelia Edwards, Thousand Miles Up the Nile, 1880s. And she was a very, very well-known writer at that point, a very successful novelist, um, and was so taken with Egypt that she, when she got back to, the, to Britain, she starts the Egypt Exploration Fund and endows the first chair in Egyptology in the world, which is at University College in London. So she, you know, talk about tra- how travel can affect a person, but also her book, is, I think it's been in print ever since, and, it, and it's, it's a really good read but, and really sort of captures that sense of travelling on the Nile when it was still a really grand thing to do not before mass, mass tourism just before you recommend your last two I'm just curious to know do you think women write travelogues very differently to men I think it's a very different experience travelling as a woman than uh, travelling as a man and particularly in the places that, that I enjoy travelling in and therefore I read a lot about there's the danger um, and a woman alone is, is more vulnerable than a man alone for obvious reasons but, um, but for instance the, the, the writings of people like Freya Stark and Gertrude Bell in the Middle East are extraordinary and, and, but neither of them have written books that, that I would sort of want, want on my top five curiously enough and number four number four how about Paul Bowles I mean, I have to say, you know, my, my, my workroom is packed from floor to ceiling in rows and rows and rows of travel books that I can't bear to part with. I mean, I, so I'm not very good at selection. <laughs> but, but Paul Bowles has written extraordinarily beautifully about, about Morocco, where he lived for a large part of his life. And, I, and his famous work is The Sheltering Sky, which was Tea in the Sahara, which was, which was made into a film. But that he wrote some beautiful short stories about, you know, village moments, not necessarily his Tangier time, but when he went when he himself went travelling in Morocco and he captured the spirit of that place because he knew the people, he knew their ways and he understood what he was seeing which of course is the big thing about travel it does help to understand what's in front of you And your last choice, the most difficult one The most difficult the one you just can't part with. The Odyssey. Honestly, it's, it might sound really, really posy, but but I just think it's I, 
I, I read it when I was at school. You know, Homer. I had to, mm. I did Homer at school, and I didn't really like it. But it's this, what, this one book that's really sort of stuck to me. And I, I've, I've, for instance, been reading um, Adam Nicholson's Why Homer Matters. The brilliant book came out uh, last year. And and suddenly you understand that here here it's you know it's the first probably the first really great story about travel. It goes right back to the beginning mm. of time. And and it contains everything. I mean, the, every travel book that's followed on from the Odyssey has had sort of elements of what happened to Odysseus on his way home. And it's inspired you know one of my my favorite poems as well, which is a, a poem called Ithaca from uh, from Cavafy, and you know, and, and it touches on so many things. Also, I've just come from Greece, so it's very fresh in my mind. But I, I'll stick with the Odyssey. Thank you. Travel writer and historian Anthony Satin, Young Lawrence, A Portrait of a Legend as a Young Man, is published by John Murray and retails at about 30 euros. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Brunock, who helped out with this week's show, the lovely Paul Murnock on Sound, and all the West Cork Literary Festival team for putting together such a quality programme, especially Festival Director Emer O'Herlihy and the super organised Jean Kearney. We've been talking books. I'd like to end tonight's show with some words from American novelist John Steinbeck, who wrote in Travels with Charlie, A journey is like a marriage. The certain way to be wrong is to think that you can control it. Good night.